0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. My name is Chad Almy, and uh, I don't quite know how to introduce myself anymore. So I used to say, and I'm a member of the admin team, but I am not anymore. I rolled off a couple months ago, so now I'm just some guy that David gets to preach when he needs a break. So, All right, well, we are sticking in 1 Peter. we're picking up where David left off last week. So we're in chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 6. And we're only doing two verses this week, so we're really going to try to suck the marrow out of these verses and go deep. So starting in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Read it one more time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So... I want to break this down and kind of almost go word by word here and give us a roadmap map for all the things that I want to cover today. Uh, it's, it's really a dense couple of verses that, that I think unlocks a central truth that, that's key to, to our whole relationship with Christ. So starting with the first two words there, humble yourselves. So humble is an active verb like go or walk or teach. It's imperative, and it's something that we need to take initiative in doing. So this isn't going to be done to us or for us. We need to take part in humbling ourselves, and we're going to see exactly how. Then it says, that, that he may lift you up in due time. So there's some relationship there that we need to humble ourselves and participate in that process so that God can lift us up in due time. And we'll explore a little bit how that works with a loving God, why God wouldn't just force us to cast our anxieties on him and humble ourselves if that's what's best for us, but we'll look at that. Lift you up. What does that mean? So it comes from the Greek hoopso, to exalt, to raise to the very summit of opulence and prosperity, to raise to dignity, honor, and happiness. So we're not just talking about resurrection and salvation, going to heaven, that may be part of it, but there does, from the Greek, seem to be a very real earthly sense to it too, where it's going to be something about our prosperity, our happiness here in this life too. In due time, this is that kairos that David talks a lot about, God's time, meaning in God's appointed, selecting, selected time, we can't control it. We can't pick it, it's gonna happen at some point that we don't know, only God knows in his time. And then, because he cares for us, right? All of that is gonna happen, this humbling ourselves and casting our anxieties on him. God wants us to do that because he cares for us, so it's, it's for our benefit. Now I read out of the NIV, and I don't think the NIV does the best of all the translations to talk about the exchange and the interplay between humble yourselves and the casting of your anxieties. So cast in this is an adverbial participle, and I had no idea what that meant. It could be a purple wombat, but an adverbial participle means that there's a relationship between that cast and that Humble yourselves. So in order for us to humble ourselves, in order for that to be possible, we have to cast our anxieties on him. And that is, I think, the central question of these two verses. Why is that? How does that work? I don't think it's intuitive that in order to humble ourselves, we have to cast our anxieties on God first. But we're going to unpack that for the rest of our time. And let's start with anxiety itself. So just think in your own head, where do your anxieties come from? When you start to spin and worry and can't sleep, what is it that's keeping you up? And I think there has to be, at least part of it, fear. Fear that whatever you planned, whatever outcome you were seeking, however you were trying to strategize and pursue, it might not work. You're fearful, you're worried about, you're anxious about an outcome that you want to happen. And what's interesting about that is we're taking on this role of controlling our own outcome outcomes that really should just be God's role, right? We're trying to control, to dictate, to get to an end that we've put out there, and ultimately we're playing the place of God. God is ultimately responsible for all of our outcomes. God is ultimately the only one who knows how all of our different paths are going to end up. And if you don't buy that and you think, no, look, I'm a talented guy or girl, I can sort of get to where I need to go on my own doing. Four things I want you to think through, examples that are common in life, and think about whether it's true that you can necessarily get to where you wanna go, sort of, of your own devices. So think about your career, right? When you start out that first day of work, and you say, this is where I wanna end up. I wanna have this job for this company, and I wanna grow and be this or that, five years down the road, much less 20 years down the road. How often does it play out that way, right? Do you get in your career a couple years in and realize, whew, wow, this is tougher than I thought. I'm going to have to zig or zag a little bit. Uh, There are so many variables in a career that are out of our control. Same with parenting a child. When you give birth, especially to your, your first child, parents for the first time, you have all these ideas about who you want your children to be and how it is that you're going to instruct them or care for them to get them there, right? And same thing, you get a few years in and you realize, whoa, this isn't as easy as I thought, to control this outcome, to make sure that my kids end up the way that I wanted them to be. Even navigating a friendship, right? You think, I've got this person in my life and they're gonna mean certain things to me, they're gonna give certain things to me, I'm gonna give certain things to them. It's usually not that simple, right? Friendships take twists and turns. There's a whole another person who perhaps wants their own outcomes or their own things to happen from that friendship. Marriage, right? The ultimate relationship here on earth. How many of us standing up on that altar, saying our vows, had an idea of marriage that years later isn't what our marriage looks like, for better or worse, right? Because things happen outside of our control. We end up in a different place than we intended to be, than we thought we would be. And there's a tension there, right? Because if we want our lives and different aspects of our lives to end up in a certain place, but God's in control, then there can be a tension of us trying to pursue things the way we want and God taking us the way we're gonna go it reminds me of this saying, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him about your plans. All right, you've heard that probably. Does, as an aside, does anybody know who that's attributed to, who that quote comes from? This shocked me, Woody Allen, that's a Woody Allen quote. I never have guessed that, right? I don't know, I think in my head why I was so startled by it, it kind of feels to me a little little bit when you're in Target and you're kind of going through that section where people decorate their homes with certain sayings and all reserved judgment, but it'd be like live, laugh, love, Woody Allen, right? Or lake rolls, drink wine on the dock, see the sunset, wake up late. Woody Allen. Like, it just doesn't fit to me. It doesn't seem like a Woody Allen quote. But nonetheless, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans is, in fact, a Woody Allen quote. Woody Allen gets it from a Yiddish proverb that says, we plan, God laughs. And it's really similar to Proverbs 16.9 in our Bible that says, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So, We have our desires in our heart. We have the way we think we want things to go. but Ultimately, God is the one who's gonna deliver us, who's gonna determine our steps. And again, there can be conflict, right? We want one thing, but God's taken us in a different way. It reminds me also of Acts 26, 14. So this is Paul describing his conversion experience when he was still Saul, right, on the road to Damascus. Acts 26, 14 says, in Jesus' words, this is what Jesus said to, to Paul on the road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul was a pretty talented guy who had a high place of standing in his culture, right? Scripture tells us he was a a Jew of Jews, he was a Pharisee, he was learned more so than other Jews. He was leading the persecution of early Christians, of Jews who believed in Jesus. And he had clout because of that. He was on the path that he wanted to be on, he was making something of himself. It was all about him, but it was working. But that wasn't Jesus' path for him. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What is that? So kicking against the goads was a term, a saying, in the ancient Greek Roman world. And, And they said that kicking against the goads led to ruinous resistance, resistance that led to your ruin. And literally, what it comes from is agriculture back then. When you're trying to train an ox to plow straight ahead, the farmer would get a stick, and he'd shave it on the end till it had a point, and he would go along behind the ox, and he would goad it, right? He'd poke it so it would keep going, so it would learn what it was supposed to do. Well, if the ox didn't want to do that, he might stop, and then he'd get pricked, and he'd kick go- keep going. Sometimes, if the ox was really stubborn, he'd get mad, and he'd kick back against the goad, and that was really dangerous because it could impale him, right? It could puncture his leg when he did that. So kicking against the goad would have been a painful, even dangerous thing to do, and that's how Jesus meant it when he said that to Saul, and I think it's illustrative of what we're talking about here. When we have plans for ourselves that are different from plans that God has for us, that conflict can be painful. It can be hard. How do we know God's plans for us such that we can humble ourselves and put those plans aside, cast our anxiety that comes from our own plans on Jesus? We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We saw Paul had to learn the hard way, right? He literally had to be knocked down and blinded before he could understand Jesus' plan for his life. Now, I want you to think about that kicking the goads and how painful that can be when we're resisting God's plan for our life, when we're trying to have our own plan for our lives, re- relying our, on ourselves and having the anxieties and the fears and the pressures that come with it. And I want you to contrast that with Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Really famous passage that I bet everyone in here has heard. Jesus' words, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, that sounds a lot better than kicking against the goats, right? I'll give you rest. You'll learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The only way we get that is to accept it daily. To prayerfully every day start out with God, what do you have for me today? And then accept all those daily gifts that he gives us that often look like serving and loving other people, probably, accepting the grace of where he wants you to go. When we are so focused on our own path, on how we're gonna get to where we need to go, it becomes a small, myopic life, right? It's all about us and what we need to accomplish. And that is very different than what we see in Matthew 11 when we surrender, we give that plan, we give those anxieties to God. And it's replaced with his yoke, which is easy and light, right? You think about getting up every morning and saying, God, what do you have for me? And in that peace and in that grace, you see needs around you, you see people you can encourage, you see people you can love. And that's a much easier yoke than grinding and running and always trying to get ahead where it's about you, 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 you. There's a story that came to mind when I was preparing this. uh, When AB and I were uh, pre-kids, we lived in Atlanta, and we went to a church, uh, St. Paul's, Presbyterian church down there, and it had a pastor named Chris Robbins uh, who was a really uh, charismatic, interesting kind of character of a guy, great, great preacher. And his dad, Chris's dad, who he would often tell stories about, was apparently an even crazier guy, kind of more charismatic guy. And and there's a story that I want to tell that I think really contrasts this idea of when you make your life about your own plans and how you're going to be sort of the master of your own universe, you're going to take the place of God versus when you're gonna submit, you're gonna humble yourself by casting your plans and your anxieties on the Lord and seeing what he has for you, relying on him. So uh, Chris's dad, I I can't remember his name, we'll call him John, uh, grew up outside Philadelphia in uh, relative poverty, went to UPenn, really smart guy, apparently really good looking, really charismatic, did well at UPenn, graduated and and got uh, a job at kind of the the fledgling CIA in the early 60s. And he was assigned down to Mexico in the field. And part of what he was doing is looking at uh, some of the, the drug cartels that were just starting up down there and the drug trafficking that was coming up through there. And he figured out, being kind of an enterprising guy, that he could make a lot of money if he helped these cartels, right, smuggle drugs in. And he did. He was good at it, made millions and millions of dollars. Ended up buying thousands of acres in rural Pennsylvania and opening, in in, in Chris's words, a hippie Buddhist commune where all were welcome. Anybody could come, bring your ethos, bring your lifestyle, just show up and live in community. And the one rule, though, that was unspoken but, but nonetheless enforced was that Everything John said went, right? This was his universe. He created it, and you know he sort of let people do what they wanted, but he had the last say, and everybody followed him. Well, apparently that worked for several years, had several kids, and all of a sudden, a missionary from rural Kentucky shows up out of the backwoods of Kentucky. And according to Chris, this guy was, uh, you know, total rube, kinda uneducated, dressed slovenly, the opposite of charismatic, the opposite of John, right? Who would have sort of wowed and and been able to work any room? Well, this missionary just opened the Bible and he started teaching from it and he had a Bible study. Guys from the community started coming to the Bible study. Well, John didn't like that because now these guys are paying attention to this missionary and not him. So John said, okay, I'm gonna go to this. They met on Tuesday nights or something. I'm gonna go to this, and I'm gonna let him do his thing, and then I'm gonna step up and just shame him, make him look like a fool. Rip the Bible apart, rip that ethos apart, and sort of win back my people, you know? What did that come out of? That was from anxiety, from fear, that he would no longer be on his course, where he's controlling that universe that he had created. So. Missionary finishes up, John stands up, and Chris says that to that day, his dad said it was probably the most eloquent he had ever been. 30 minute monologue on nature and uh, how the universe all worked together and how God and Jesus was an absurdity of children's fairy tale and couldn't possibly be true. And he sat down feeling great, knowing that he had crushed it, that there's no way every guy in that room didn't agree and wouldn't follow him again. The missionary didn't skip a beat as soon as John sat down. He said, well, John, that was real pretty. But the fact remains, if you don't repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to hell. And that was it. And it pierced John to his soul immediately. Holy Spirit, he knew that that was truth and that everything that he had just said was folly. And he sat there and the missionary finished the Bible study with the guys and the guys trickled out and John just sat there, stunned in the back. And eventually the missionary came back and he opened the Bible and until the sun rose, he taught John the gospel and he accepted Christ and then, Everyone in the, in the community accepted Christ. His children accepted Christ. Chris, his son, ended up going to Wheaton and becoming a pastor. The contrast of John had this plan that worked for a while, right? He knew what he wanted. He knew or he thought how to get there, how to achieve it. And this missionary who was just showing up, opening his Bible and teaching, totally relying on God and his grace every day to lead him. Didn't matter the education level, who was more handsome, who was more charismatic, God's word won out. That philosophy of humbling yourself, casting your anxieties on God, ultimately God's going to get us all where he wants us to go. You know, there's some tension here, too, with our culture. So, if all we have to do is just accept this grace, right, our plans and the anxieties that are based on us and what we want, we chuck those to the side and we just accept the gift of grace and the daily gifts that come and opportunities that, that come. Well, that's—I mean, that, that doesn't sound super American, right? I mean, we're not earning it, right? It's not based on merit. It's not manifest destiny and go west, young man, right? There is a real tension with our culture of we want to earn it because it tells us something about ourselves, right? When we think we're responsible for that success, then we're enough, we're lovable. People know who we are, we're significant, right? And there's nothing wrong with these virtues that we lionize on their own, self-reliance, independence, autonomy, except when they cause us to replace God with ourselves, right? When we say, this is my plan, to my own end, to get me what I want, there's no room for God anymore. We've become God. Great quote by C.S. Lewis that David has said several times from up front. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Right? Humility isn't disparaging ourselves, saying, well, I you know, shouldn't rely on myself or my plan because I'm no good at it anyway and probably won't be successful and I'm not important. No, not at all. We're supposed to cast our anxieties on God as a confirmation of our trust in him, that we affirm he's God and he knows what's best for our lives, that we come to life like this, Say, Lord, use me every day. Give me eyes to see. Show me the gifts you have for me and the opportunities you have for me to serve. Every day, thinking of ourselves less, not thinking less of ourselves, thinking of ourselves less. There's over 140 verses in the Bible that tell us not to worry, not to be anxious, Not to be fearful, but instead to cast those on God or on Jesus. It's everywhere. And and you think about humbling ourselves. If this verse, if these two verses say, humble yourself, and in order to do that, you have to cast your anxieties on God. Well, that casting your anxieties on God is really important because we see throughout the New Testament, Jesus talking about how The only thing we have to be able to do is to go to Him with open hands and to surrender and to accept His grace. That's it. We can't earn it. We can't control it. We can't manipulate it. We can only accept it. And so, this whole idea of humbling ourselves is central to the gospel, it's central to our relationship with Jesus. And if casting our anxieties is a necessary prerequisite, then that's really important. We've really got to understand how do we take this fear and this worry and this anxiety, 140 different verses in the Bible, and how do we cast it on God? David said from up front, he said it a few times, if you struggle with worry, with anxious thought a lot, it very well may be a lack of faith in the same way that we're talking about here, that you're so set on making sure that you can find the answer, that you can get to the end, that you can make your own way, that you worry that it's not gonna happen, that you're not gonna be able to do it. It's the opposite, right, of casting your anxieties. And I remember the first time you said it, because I struggle a lot with both, and it made me mad. We went to lunch after, we had young kids and A, B, and I, I, mean, I probably litter ears on fire with how frustrated I was by that, that he's going to say that's because of a lack of faith. And he, he always qualifies it and says there's, you know, there are certain medical conditions, chemical imbalances, etc. But But at base, most worry and most anxious thought is due to a lack of faith. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're not trusting his plan for us. And upon further reflection, despite my initial sort of repulsion to that, I agree. I think he's right. But just because I agree doesn't make it any easier to do. It is really hard. You can read any number of sort of Christian self-help books about it. You can talk about it. You can seek guidance from mentors. And it still is really hard because it isn't a quick fix that we can sort of drill down on ourselves with. It's a heart posture. It's a lost child going back and relying on her loving father. And I think that's a helpful illustration. Jesus throughout the gospels talks about children and upholds them as a model for our faith, right? We're supposed to love like these children, have faith like these children, rely on God like these children. Think about young children. They don't have plans for the day. They get up, and however their parents direct them is what they do. Really, young children can't even feed themselves, right? Can't open the refrigerator, can't cook breakfast, can't cook lunch. They rely on their parents, on their mother and father for everything. And that's a model for how we need to rely on God. As I was preparing this, I thought about summers growing up we were out of school. And my brother and I were home with our mom. And, you know, we didn't have all the disposable income in the world to just, you know, sort of go to Six Flags or the arcade every day. But my mom made every day an adventure. She sort of scoured the newspapers or... Uh, the church bulletins, the community bulletins, to find things for us to be able to do to fill our summers with, right? We'd go to the library and there'd be story time with the princesses, or we'd go and ride the tallest slide in Atlanta at Chastain Park, or we'd, we'd go on a search, a hunt for fresh honeysuckle, or splash around in puddles and pretend there were lakes and rivers and create our own narratives. Every day was magic. It was an adventure because we trusted my mom with what we were going to do, with the plan. We didn't worry about it. And there's some version of that that we can do with our Heavenly Father. We can get up every day and say, God, what do you have for me today? Cast your anxieties every day. And life can become an adventure for us, even. And I'm sure most of you are thinking, well, that, you know, it's a lot easier to do when you're riding slides and going to story time than when you're on Zoom calls and running carpools, right? But that's probably missing a little bit what those opportunities are for us. I mean, we get up every day, we have no idea who God's gonna put in front of us. We have no idea what opportunities for conversations we're gonna have, what opportunities we're gonna have to love and be loved, to show kindness and receive kindness, to serve and be served, to know and be known, right? Every day, God gives us gifts and he gives us opportunities. And we can either be so focused on what we need to achieve, run and run and run and run and run it, that we miss them, Or we can every day cast our anxieties on him and say, what do you have for me, Lord? With open hands. But God's not gonna force us to do that. He's a loving God and He loves us enough that He gives us the choice. He gives us the choice to either pursue our own ends and all the anxiety and fear and stress that comes with it or to cast all that on Him and receive the free gift of grace. Not earn, not manipulate, not control, just receive or accept it. James 4, 6 said, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That pride, that self-reliance, that self-focus is necessarily going to separate us from, us from God because it puts us in the place of him. This pride, this selfishness, I think is the ultimate door locked from the inside that separates us from God. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful illustration of this in The Great Divorce, where there's a bus of folks coming up from purgatory and they get to go to heaven. And any of them who want to can stay. They get off the bus and they can stay. They're interacting with the elect in heaven. And not a one of them does. They all get back on the bus and go back to purgatory because they're so consumed with themselves and what they think is going to make them happy. He explains that same idea again in A Problem of Pain. And I'll read the quote. Lewis says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self enslaved. Just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free that paradox that we see in scripture all the time, that obedience, that submission leads to freedom. It's exactly the two verses we're talking about right now. We humble ourselves, we submit ourselves to God by casting our anxieties to him. It unlocks everything. It unlocks right relationship with God and that gift of free love that then we can love others with freely. Lewis goes on, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question, right? So he's talking about people who said, how how can God allow hell to exist? He says, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he's done so on Calvary. He's forgiven all sins for all people who are willing to accept it. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. He will let us go down the path. And whether it's talking about salvation and what's at stake there, or whether it's talking about just being able to miss the blessings and the gifts and the opportunities every day, he'll let us go down that path to our own destruction. But he wants us to cast our anxieties on him, to humble ourselves, and to accept those gifts and that love. So as, as we close, I really wanna draw attention to, draw focus on the distinction between us pursuing our own paths for our own glory to our own ends with accepting daily the free gift of grace and the gifts and opportunities that God gives us and how that frees us up to live in the moment, to see people around us, to engage in real community. So we go back to lift you up, right? In our verses, it says, all this is for God to lift you up. And remember, there's a piece of it that happens here on earth. From the Greek, it's clearly not just talking about our salvation, but lifting us up here on earth. And that could probably look like a lot of different things for everyone in this room. But for me, what gets me most excited about that that idea of God lifting us up after we humble ourselves and cast our anxieties on him is the idea that we're able to fully engage in right relationship with him, to fully accept his gift of free love. Right, we haven't earned it, we haven't manipulated it, we haven't controlled it, we've just accepted it. And then we're able to freely love those around us with it. So when I get anxious, which I often do, what do I do? I think it's revealing of my heart and how I struggle with these issues. So when I start to worry about the future, I immediately go to a new plan. So this didn't work, so I'm gonna do this and then this. I'm gonna have this conversation if it's career-based and and then make sure that this person hears this and and maybe I'll do this for a couple years and I'll eventually get to where I wanted to go and and I spin and I spin and I spin and I worry and I worry and I worry and it's all in vanity and to my own end because that's what I want, because that's what I think is going to make me happy, probably because that's what I think is going to make me enough. That's what I think is going to make me love. That's what I think is going to make me accepted. And if I'm looking to sort of medicate those feelings, right, what do I do? Even more embarrassingly, I'll go to Zillow, right, and think about, oh, if if I have this plan right and end up being successful, then when I could get this house, just complete and total, Sinful materialism, right? Or on a smaller scale, I'm going to plan this vacation because it's going to make me feel better. And it will for a time, right? I can earn enough money to be able to do this and bless our family. And there's nothing wrong with vacations, right? But I'm using it to medicate this hole, this need that I have. And the worst part of it is when I'm spinning like that and I'm going and I'm trying to figure it out because I know I can find a way if I just think about it enough, if I just figure it out. The worst is I miss everything and everyone around me. I miss the opportunity to text a word of encouragement to that person who needs it because I don't even see them. I miss the opportunity if we go out to dinner on a Friday night and it's crazy and the waitress is harried and overwhelmed. I miss the opportunity to give a kind word, to encourage. I miss the opportunity to just stop and help because I don't see the need. I miss the opportunity to clean the kitchen. I miss the opportunity to get on the floor and wrestle with the kids. I miss it because I'm consumed with myself and how I'm gonna fix it so that I can do what I wanna do and achieve what I wanna achieve. Instead of doing this, Casting those anxieties on God who wants them. He wants to bear that burden for us. Saying, God, what do you have for me today? Where are the gifts? Where are the opportunities? Russ Masterson is uh, the pastor of Redeemer, which is another church here in the city of Marietta. Uh, and he's become a friend. And he says this over and over and over and over again preaches and he says it and he says it in conversation he says you are more flawed than you ever imagined but more loved than you could ever dare to dream you are more flawed than you could ever imagine but more loved than you could ever dare to dream you see it turns out i am enough i am loved I am seen, I am I accept. I am accepted. It just has absolutely nothing to do with anything that I've ever done, that I've ever earned, that I've ever tried to control or manipulate. It is only by the blood of Jesus. All right, we're at the end, and I'm gonna close this in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to read Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30 one more time. And as I do, And leading into prayer, I'd love it if everyone would just go ahead and close your eyes. And just let this verse, this passage, wash over you. Let Jesus' offer wash over you. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus, thank you that you ask us, that you command us to cast our anxieties on you, so that we can humble ourselves and experience full relationship with you and with others. Lord, you know how corrosive and destructive love of self above all else is. And you know the life that we can have and we can experience with you and with the community that you give us if we just come to you with open hands and ask every day, Lord, what do you have for us? Help us to do that, Lord. We are weary. We need rest. Help us to lose ourselves and take on your yoke. Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church sermon of the week.